The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome Dr. Susan Nagel. She holds a PhD from the University of Missouri, did postdoctoral work at Duke University. She is on the faculty at the University of Missouri Columbia School of Medicine. She is with the Center for Reproductive Medicine and Fertility, which focuses on reproductive and perinatal research. I recently heard her speak about one of her latest publications, which has to do with estrogen and androgen receptor activities of hydraulic fracking chemicals and surface groundwater in a drilling dense region, which specifically was in Colorado. But we will be having a conversation about endocrine disruptors, fertility, public health, water, food, and connecting of those dots. So, Dr. Nagel, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I really appreciated the presentation that you gave that I heard because one of the most difficult things I think to talk about is how we do connect these dots between fuel and food and water quality and reproductive health and the whole body burden of chemicals that we face and how the fetal environment can predict future diseases even into adulthood. So let me just start out by asking you how you became interested in this field. Interested in endocrine disruption? Yes, Yes. So as a graduate student, I was very interested in studying estrogens. I had done a little work after college in a breast cancer lab. So I kind of picked that work up in graduate school and very quickly became interested in this new hypothesis at the time of endocrine disruption, that chemicals in our environment that we're exposed to every day could disrupt hormone signaling. And I particularly, you know, study the sex hormones, estrogens and androgens. So I became very interested at that time. So that was uh, 20 years ago. Wow. Okay, so I think the whole concept of endocrine disruption needs some clarification. So first let's start out with what is the endocrine system? Yes, very broadly it is the study of all the hormones in our body. So hormones are chemical messages that our body uses to communicate, and to tell neighboring cells what to do. It's absolutely required for normal functioning as adults, for normal reproduction, so to get pregnant and have successful pregnancies and have healthy babies. It's also required during development when babies are developing in the womb and then in early life. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think it does. And, you know, when I first learned about endocrine disruption, it was really around plastics. So BPA and phthalates, those might be two compounds that our listeners might be more familiar with. And all of the issues regarding these ubiquitous compounds that are in our water, they're in our food, they migrate from food containers, they're in our water supply, and That's when I first became alarmed about them, but now with this new work in getting fuel and seeking more fossil fuels through hydraulic fracturing, 
I'm realizing that there's even more exposure or potential exposure to endocrine disruptors. So that's what really alerted me to this topic and wanting to interview you, but then also this idea of how these endocrine disruptors might be influencing our immune system and our neurological system and fertility. So working in this field, would you say that fertility rates have declined over the years? So in looking at data from the CDC, fertility rates have not declined in the time frame that they have been measuring them. In fact, infertility has declined. So the ability to get pregnant when you are not using birth control for 12 months has actually, uh, that has increased. That is probably due to the increased access to reproductive technologies. And what has increased is the number of women or the percent of women who have difficulty getting pregnant. I see. What about sperm counts? Have we seen, at least in the United States, I don't know about worldwide, but at least in the United States, have we seen changes in sperm counts or sperm motility? Yes, definitely. Those, some very sentinel studies in the 1990s, looked back at all of uh, the literature on sperm counts and initially synthesized more than 60 papers and showed rather definitively that sperm counts have definitely declined over the last 50 years, and that is both in the United States and in Europe. And do we have any explanation for that? Well, we certainly have some ideas of things that might be implicated, and you know, what I study is endocrine disruption, so that's you know those are the things I know more about. And certainly, certain pesticides have been associated with reduced sperm count in men. When we do laboratory studies, we can replicate a cause and effect relationship with certain endocrine disrupting chemicals and reduce sperm count. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar too, especially with atrazine, for example resulting in more birth defects when atrazine levels are higher in ground and surface water. And I can only assume that these hydraulic fracking fluids, because they are endocrine disruptors, might have the same result. Am I correct to maybe make those assumptions? That is certainly plausible. In fact, there was a epidemiological study that was just released in the last month that looked at some birth outcomes associated with hydraulic fracturing in Colorado. And in in that study, they found that uh, women living near hydraulic fracturing, their babies uh, had an increased risk of developing heart defects. Hmm. Well, that leads us to the issue of natural, and I'm putting quotation marks around natural gas, because it is often portrayed in the media as being cheap and cleaner than other fossil fuels. And I think it's so important for those of us who work in public health fields to do more full-cost accounting. So as we're describing natural gas as cheap, I'm wondering about the costs of things like birth defects or fertility treatments. Do you ever think about those things? I certainly have thought about them, um, and I don't have uh, much expertise in actually doing any of those calculations, but I absolutely agree that they should be factored into the cost of our fuel. Mm-hmm. 
I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what led you to your research in Colorado. You did your research in Garfield County, which, as you explained, is west of Denver. And how is it that you went from the University of Missouri's labs to Colorado? And how did you find the particular sites and what led you to that region? Right. So we were looking for an area that had a very dense number of natural gas drilling wells and that used the process of hydraulic fracturing. And Garfield County, over the past 20 years, has gone from about 2,000 natural gas wells to 10,000 natural gas wells. So it has increased dramatically. And over that time, many spills related to the wastewater of this process have been reported. So we were very interested in an area that we could go where we knew that it was a very uh, high production area where spills had occurred. Were you welcome? Uh, we were welcomed by those that had had spills. I see. What about the oil and gas industry? Did they not want you near their sites? Was there any sort of restriction placed upon you? Uh, well, we only went on private property, so uh, where we had, you know, express written permission from the landowners. So we didn't, that issue didn't really come up. You know, one of the things that I thought was interesting from your paper is that you describe one of the spill sites being a former site for a ranch, an operating ranch, and that individual had to stop doing what they were doing and raising animals because the animals were no longer reproducing. And I suppose there were some environmental risks also with regard to the spill itself. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in that particular case? I can talk a little bit about it um, as much as I, I know. So those spills had happened in 2004 and 2005, and we actually were there in 2010, so you know, quite a number of years later. In that case, there had been a tank of a 18-wheeler that transports wastewater from the wells that had leaked out, and it was above a, uh, a pond that is that was used for the animals. And well, that was yeah, that is pretty much the extent of what I know about the actual spill. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering. What happened to the rancher? You know, was was he or she compensated for their loss? I actually cannot answer that question. I, I don't know. Uh, what I do know is that it was a very lengthy process, and that when we were there, I don't think so, but I can't. Um, I might misspeak if I say one way or the other. But I do know that um, it, it drug out over years as far as the uh, industry um taking responsibility and and for that. Right. Yeah, it's really concerning to me because if we're depending on farmers and ranchers to feed us well and we have these kinds of spills, I worry not only for the economic impact on the individual farmer but also in the local food system and what kind of implications that has. Right. And I think those are excellent questions to be asking Mm-hmm. So was anybody at the Colorado Department of Health working with you in your investigation? No, not uh, not at that time. And are they pursuing this kind of investigation now, or do they feel 
that their hands are tied, perhaps? You know, I, I guess I, I can't answer that. I, I think they are absolutely interested in pursuing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that what is the role, we have to ask about, you know, what is the role of our government in overseeing these kinds of operations when public health is at risk? So we're talking about, you know, protection of the commons here. And I wonder, you mentioned briefly during your talk about the role of the EPA and that, or the Environmental Protection Agency, and how underfunded it is to really investigate these kinds of issues. What do you know about the EPA's role in the area where you investigated? I don't know about specifically in that area. I guess what I'm more familiar with is at the national level. Currently, there is a large study to assess the health effects related to hydraulic fracturing Mm -hmm. by the Environmental Protection Agency. And that is scheduled to be completed this year, I think. And as part of that, I think they have diverted funds to that particular study and away from others. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, let's take one little break and just remind our listeners that we are speaking with Dr. Susan Nagel. She holds her Ph.D. from the University of Missouri, where she is on the faculty at the School of Medicine with the Missouri Center for Reproductive Medicine and Fertility, which focuses on reproductive and perinatal research. You know, one of the things that you mentioned that I think is so critical to understand with regard to endocrine disruptors is this idea that the dose doesn't necessarily make the poison. And so often I hear at my own nutrition conferences, for example, that, well, you know, it's just a little tiny bit and that a little tiny bit isn't going to harm us. But endocrine disruptors are a little bit different, aren't they? Endocrine disruptors, since they are interfering with hormones, hormones work at very low concentrations. So it, even though these chemicals in the environment are weaker say, than our own estrogen or androgen, they can uh, they are present at much higher concentrations, which is you know, surprising to a lot of people. So they actually can be present within a biologically active range, which is still considered quite low, mm-hmm. because all of our testing has been, in the past, has testing of safety of chemicals has been done on acute toxicity you know, acute carcinogenesis um, and acute reproductive problems. So in that case, it generally takes a whole lot of a chemical to be a toxicant. However, it takes much less to be a hormone disruptor. Mm-hmm. You had a wonderful slide of an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And I think that this is a really great way to show the magnitude of just a tiny little bit. So we're talking about a compound that has biological activity at amounts that are smaller than a drop of water in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Did I understand you correctly? Yes, you did. So let's talk about the size or the quantity of these compounds. Are we we talking about less than a drop, and is that a part per million or a part per billion, how do we make sense of these numbers and when something is so teeny tiny? Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. 
So for estradiol, which is the body's own estrogen, it is actually present at the part per trillion range. Mm-hmm. Um, and the analogy that I gave of, of the drop of water in a Olympic swimming pool is in the part per billion range. So we're talking about maybe a grain of sand. For the endogenous hormone estradiol, correct. Wow. But that is, it, and that is a very, very small amount, although it is still a large number of molecules. <laughs> it's just, uh, yes, it is difficult to get your brain around. Yeah, it is. And and the other point that I wanted to bring out from your paper is that we're looking at hundreds of products containing more than 750 chemicals and components that are potentially used throughout the the hydraulic fracturing process. And I'm wondering how many of those are known or suspected endocrine disruptors? How many have been thoroughly tested? And have they been tested in combination? So the Endocrine Disruption Exchange did a systematic review of the literature uh, and published that in 2011 of 350 chemicals that they knew of at the time that were used in the process. And the number that they came up with that were suspected or known endocrine disruptors was about 30%. Hmm. Uh, And and I think moving forward, I, I think that's, a pretty good estimate of the magnitude. Uh, we'll, you know, know more after we test them all. And I say that because they haven't all necessarily been tested for their ability to disrupt hormones. Mm-hmm. And then the testing of chemicals, and I, I know most of this around my reading of pesticides in particular. And when they are tested, you know, they're tested one by one, but they often occur in the environment in combination with others. So I always expect that there might be a synergistic effect. Do you know if there's been any research in looking at combinations of these chemicals? Yes, uh, definitely. Certainly there has been research. Uh, You are absolutely correct that at a regulatory level, it is quite the conundrum of how to deal with environmentally relevant mixtures of chemicals. But what we know in the lab is that for chemicals that have that act in the same way, so let's say that they act to disrupt the estrogen receptor, those chemicals, their activity adds up. It's additive. So if you have two chemicals that both disrupt estrogen signaling, it could be in effect twice the amount. Mm -hmm. So for individuals then living in this region where there is hydraulic fracturing going on, I mean, personally, and maybe it's just me, I would be fearful of raising children in those areas. Have there been any public health messaging, warning parents? um, Are people advised to filter their water at the very least? Not to my knowledge. There there are certainly, uh, when there are known spills, there are those kinds of messages. However, I don't know if there are any messages yet for just the status quo when there are not, you know, an acute spill situation. Mm-hmm. You know, for someone who works, I don't know, do you, do you counsel women at all who come into the lab or come into your center, or are you mostly doing research in the lab? I am a researcher. Okay. Let's say I'm your neighbor, and I've decided that I would like to move to one of these regions. I, I love Colorado. I want to move there. 
and I'm thinking about starting a family. What kind of advice would you give me? Wow, that's uh, that's pretty tough. I think uh, at this point we don't, uh, we just don't have a lot of information to counsel women um, mm. on this. I think that is one of my major take-home messages: is that there is a huge lack of information about the safety of this process. What little bit we do know suggests that there is cause for concern. Yeah. So we know enough to know that there might be an increased risk from living near these areas. Yeah. And I imagine that if a person lives in that region and fracking, you know, they they buy a piece of property, fracking begins after they've bought the property, that the value of their real estate must decline drastically. I can't speak to that, actually. I do not know. Yeah. It's just one of the things that I think about, you know, what are all the implications of, you know, because of the fine research that you've done here that have really raised the red flag about the safety of these processes and what the true cost is, you know, I always think about what the long-term implications are for populations living in those regions to general public health, reproductive health, long-term health, and our, our simple food and water supply, which is so critical. And I thought it was interesting in your paper that one of the things that you brought out was that in 2011, the EPA concluded that chemicals used in natural gas operations had contaminated groundwater and domestic water supply in Pavilion, Wyoming. And I had to wonder, you know, while we certainly didn't read it in our newspapers, I, I do wonder about what has happened to that community in terms of, you know, did it become a ghost town because their water was no longer potable? Well, that that is actually a, a an interesting ongoing story in the sense that that report was a draft report from the Environmental Protection Agency, our national EPA, mm-hmm. and they were scheduled to release a final report on the topic and they decided not to do that. So they just aborted in mid-report after a huge amount of work. And what they ended up doing was turning it over to the uh, local and Wyoming EPA to deal with. <laughs> so that's uh, that was rather shocking. Yeah. Well, if any investigative reporters are listening to this conversation, I hope that they might take that as a a good story lead and uh, further pursue that. Because I think this is, you know, there's a whole branch of law that looks at environmental justice and populations living in these contaminated areas. And I remember when I was in my dietetics program, you know, we learned that water was the most important nutrient. And I think for those of us who turn on our tap and expect to have safe water coming out of it, we've come to take that for granted. And then when I read reports such as this and I think, oh, my gosh, this is truly serious, especially when we consider the future health of our children, which I can't imagine anything that would be of greater importance. I also want to bring something else out from your paper, which you also mentioned in your talk, which was that hydraulic fracturing was exempted from multiple federal regulatory acts in 2005, including the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Clean Air Act. You know, you have to scratch your head and say, how did that happen? Right. And first, just a, a point of clarification, it was it was exempted from parts of all of those 
X. So it was exempted from parts of six of our major federal environmental regulations. And as to how that happened, it was in the 2005 Energy Policy Act. Mm. So as a means to increase the ease of this process, presumably to relieve our dependence on foreign oil, this is how it came to be as far as my understanding goes. That's interesting. You know, I wonder, did you have any trouble or perhaps the Endocrine Disruption Center, which is another terrific resource for people who want to learn more about this, and we'll, we'll provide the link to that as well as your personal website, but did you have any trouble identifying some of the chemical compounds that were used in hydraulic fracturing, or are some of these compounds considered proprietary chemicals? They are considered proprietary, which means they do not have to report uh, what is being used. However, uh, in 2011, Congress asked the oil and gas industry to disclose those voluntarily to Congress. And in that process is when the collated list of 750 chemicals, that's where that came from. But it is true that in most places, while there is often voluntary disclosure, it is not required. Mm-hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left. Do you want to just talk a little bit about how we might reduce our exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals in our general environment? And, you know, early on we agreed that these compounds are ubiquitous, unfortunately. But do you have any ideas for women who are, you know, the Native Americans view women's bodies as the first environment because this, of course, is where our children develop. Do you have any advice for women on how to reduce our exposure? Sure, and and I certainly agree with that thought that this is our first environment for all of us. And it I would argue it is one of the most important because it lays down your entire life as far as your risk for different diseases a concept called the fetal origins of adult disease. As far as reducing exposure, I think that's a a great audience to target is is women who uh, know that they want to become pregnant and women who are pregnant. And, you know, the simplest advice I can give is just to be mindful of all the chemicals that we do choose to use. We, uh, We live in a chemical world and we are so happy for the opportunity to do so. However, uh, when you go to get your house treated for insects, you may want to not do that any time around conception and during pregnancy. You may want to have someone else paint the baby's room and you stay at your mom's house that weekend. Anytime we can make choices to reduce our exposure to chemicals, all of the products that we use in cosmetics and lotions, we're putting these on our bodies and many of these chemicals can be absorbed directly through the skin. So while I've said before I'm not an alarmist and there's only so much we can do, this is something we have control over of just even starting to think about how many chemicals we choose to be exposed to. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Nagel, so much for being my guest, and we will provide some websites, some links to help women make these choices better. 
Just to remind our listeners, Dr. Susan Nagel is on the faculty at the University of Missouri-Columbia School of Medicine, where she is at the Center for Reproductive Medicine and Fertility, which focuses on reproductive and perinatal research. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, listeners, for joining us, and thank you, Dr. Nagel, for your important research and for being my guest. Thank you so much. Thank you.